0: No doubt uh, no few of us here are familiar with, maybe you've visited at some point, Patty's 1880s Settlement uh, up there in western Kentucky, just north of land between the lakes. It's been a little tourist stop for a lot of people through the years and continued to be just up until early last year when it had that terrible fire, though I understand they're opening again sometime this, this spring. Uh, one of the things that Patty's Settlement, 1880 Settlement, has been known for through the years have been these giant pies, six to eight inches high of coconut and lemon and chocolate heaven, right? Six to eight inches. Now, granted, most of that six to eight inches, when you bring it right down, is meringue. And, and, and meringue is little more than just just fluffy, airy, egg white, and sugar, so it's a lot of pie, uh, six to eight inches high, but again, most of it's meringue, and I don't mean to sound harsh, and I really, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to cooking and, and all such, I just eat it. Um, but meringue is a little more than show. Really? I mean, when you think about it, it's a little more than, I mean, just, it's just air, it's just fluff, it's a little more than just Show. And the reason I bring this up, leading to this passage here this morning, is Jesus is warning us here of what I'm going to call meringue spirituality. It's all show. There's very little substance. It's ultimately, in terms of our relationship with the true and living God, hollow and empty. It's meringue. Jesus will have nothing to do with that. He will have nothing to do with that. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, as we are continuing on through this study, you can see it up on the screen there. It's verses 18 through 22. If you want to follow along your Bible uh, and you're trying to find that, this is the first of the four Gospels, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 21 It's where we are. It's a short passage, picking right up where we left off last week. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 20... 22, excuse me. Matthew 18, 21. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. Hear now God's word. "'In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves.'" And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, that's pretty extraordinary stuff. We need to pray. Father, thank you, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, this opportunity that we have to begin this week in this way, uh, gathered here on this Sunday morning. Thank you for a a dry roof and a comfortable place to to sit and just be still here for a a little bit. Uh, We ask that you would please, please make this more than just some rote routine or habit or uh, just a thing we're checking off the list of to-dos that we feel like we ought to do. But rather, uh, this time gathered here this morning, oh, would you make it increasingly what you mean it to be, and that be a time of worship, a time of hearing and responding, of seeing anew and marveling from the heart's depth of who you are, what you have done, our hearts rekindled in love and affection and trust in you, and a determination, leaning into all that you are, to live in accordance with these things as your people, as your disciples. We ask that. We have had a call to worship earlier in this time. We've sung some songs. We've recited a creed. We come now to an encounter with your living word, and we are asking that you would move into our hearts in ways that only you can, only truly you you can, whether we have heard this passage a gazillion times or never heard it before, whether we've got some ideas to what it's about or we're just scratching our heads at this moment wondering what in the world is going on here. Whatever that may be, wherever we may be, we ask that you would meet us now. We pray in your name. Amen. I came across a A headline in a news piece a few weeks ago, and I made a note of it, and I want to read to you just a little summary of it. Here's the headline. That alone ought to get your attention. Airbnb lists converted Cold War nuclear missile silo as rental. Yeah, I'm not making this up. What was once the home of a nuclear warhead in the early and mid-1960s and was left abandoned for decades has been now thoroughly remade to become this underground mansion. The structure was built in 1959, once stored an intercontinental missile that had a warhead 32 times more powerful than the bomb that was dropped in 1945 on Hiroshima. And yet, now it has a full kitchen, a private bath, laundry services, and a fireplace, and this is the quote on on the ad, uh, which gives a nice, cozy feeling in the fall and winter months. A former missile silo. It's quite a change. You could say, and I don't mean to be cute here, but you could say a deep transformation. It might well look com- just, just completely the same on the outside, right? But down there deep within, literally deep within, there's something t- that you could say has been a radical change, and my friends, that is exactly what Jesus intends to do in our lives, a, make a radical change within us from down deep and working its way out from there, which brings us to our text. This, what we just read a few moments ago, is the third part, and what, I've, frankly, you could say is really one singular event, though it takes place over the course of, of just a, a couple of days. Three things, three events. We, two weeks ago, we looked at Palm Sunday, Jesus riding there on that donkey into Jerusalem. Last Sunday, we were talking about the cleansing of the temple. And now here, we have the cursing of this, this fig tree. And every one of those three, each of those three things raise some questions. They're, 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 these, this, in a sense, is behavior that seems strikingly odd to us things that Jesus is doing that in some ways just don't make much sense. They just sound, they seem so different than everything else that we have seen thus far in his earthly ministry. We have to ask ourselves, what in the world is going on here? But the question that we ought to be raising at this point is not how did Matthew get it wrong in his reporting. That is not the question that we should be asking this morning. How did Matthew get it wrong, but rather, where have we missed it? Where are we getting it wrong? How is it that our our impression, our understanding of Jesus is such that these three events, Palm Sunday, the cleansing of the temple, and now the cursing of this tree seem so out of character to us? How have we missed it so? How have we missed Jesus so that these things seem so out of whack to us? That's the question that we should be asking. What's going on here? And what's going on here is is really just this. He is determined. Jesus is determined to bring deep change. Jesus is determined to bring deep change in the lives of his people, and we as his people, as his disciples, as his followers, should want that, should long for that, such deep change in ourselves. How do we see that? We see that in two ways in the text. You can see it there in your outline this morning there in part of your bulletin. The fruit for which he longs and the prayer that we are called to pray. The fruit for which he longs and the things for which we are to pray. Those two things show us something of his heart uh, as, as we look into this passage. We see something. What in the world is going on here with the cursing of this poor little fig tree? I say that rather sarcastically. The first thing, let's look at this. What is Jesus longing for? What is the fruit that he is longing for? This is the what. This is the what of the passage. What does he want? What is he after? What is he desire to see in us? And we get that, we just read the first two verses, get a sense of that, in verses 18 and 19. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Again, this is puzzling. What's going on here? But to get at that, we need to understand something of the growth patterns of fig trees, how they grow. We actually have to get into just a little bit of horticulture here. Fig trees in the ancient Near East were valued for at least these two things. One was their fruit. And the other was their foliage, the shade that they offered. Every spring, a a fig tree would come out in leaf, okay? And the, the, the coming out of those leaves always brought with it, inevitably, these little premature figs called tusks, roughly about the shape of an almond, bitter, not terribly tasty at all, but yet edible still if you're hungry enough. Okay? So the, so the deal is, if you see the leaves, you should see these little premature figs, these tusks, and that was a promise of yet more to come. In just a few weeks, the, the full, the mature figs. So the leaves, you understand, is a promise of fruit. The initial fruit, those little almond things, they're going to drop off in a few weeks, and then the fuller fruit, the figs themselves, to come. So Jesus has a a reasonable expectation. As he sees this fig tree in leaf, he has every reasonable expectation that there will be fruit, even if it's just this premature little almond-shaped size things. What does he find? He finds all leaves and no fruit. He finds, if if you will, it's it's a false promise that this tree is making, false advertising He has this very reasonable expectation, this profound, reasonable disappointment. All leaves, no fruit. If I can put it this way, it's almost oxymoronic, a figless fig tree. That's what he is encountering here. So the promise of the leaves then takes you into the curse on the tree. This is not Jesus throwing a temper tantrum. And this is the way some people have approached this text. He's just lost it and so unbecoming. Now, again, it does seem somewhat strange to us because, yes, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that there are judgment miracles there. We we do have the flood. Oh, that's one. You do have the Tower of Babel. That would be another. You do have the plagues there in Egypt. That would be another, or another another series. But when you see Jesus' miracles, all of them up to this point have been restorative. They've been healing. But this one seems so markedly, so markedly, so dramatically different to us. And so again, people wonder has he just snapped? Has he just had it? You know, like a parent with young children. Have they just had it? You know, if I've, I've, I can't take it anymore. You've, 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 you've... No. Jesus is in utter control of not only himself but also all of his circumstances, his surroundings. He's God. So what we, know, we know something of his character already at this point, up to this, this point here in the gospel record. So we know in no way is it just that he is snapped. No, he's in control of any and everything that you could possibly imagine. But rather, this is an, an object lesson that he is, is teaching, he is giving to his disciples. It is an acted parable. That's what he's doing here. The context is absolutely vital for us to understand. I said this earlier. This is part of, this is the third part of of a three act thing. Jesus riding in into the city on Sunday, on Monday, coming into the temple and cleansing it, and now here on Tuesday, pronouncing this curse upon the tree. That figless fig tree, all leaves and no fruit points to the temple. It represents, it's an object lesson of this is what the temple is. Lots of activity and no substance. And its withering was meant to point towards the time that is coming, and was for them just coming in a few decades, 70 AD, when the temple system of worship that the Jewish people were so accustomed and used to was going to be obliterated. No more. No more. Jesus longs for fruit. He longs for true, authentic, heartfelt worship. He longs for faith and repentance. He longs for trust and obedience. He longs for for word and deed, orthodoxy and orthoproxy. That's what he's longing for. That's the fruit he's looking for. And we as his people, we as his disciples, should as well. Again, this is is something of a warning, a warning to us this morning. Are we all leaves and no fruit? Are we figless fig trees? That's the question that, that demands to be wrestled with as we consider this acted parable, this object lesson. What do others see when they look at us? There might have been a time in our lives where we were known to be angry, bitter people. We might have been struggling profoundly for most of our lives with anxiety and and, and worry. We might even have a reputation of being people whose aims are basically driven by selfishness and whose words are typified by slander. All that may be the case, but for the follower of Jesus, the disciple, there ought to yet still be at least some flowering of fruit, some something that's happening from you know, down deep within that's showing itself outwardly. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things should be present slowly but surely, making themselves known in our lives. What of us? What of us? Are we figless fruit trees? This is the question. This is the what Jesus is looking for. Fruit. Fruit as he's looking at his people. That's the first thing that we need to reckon with, and it is a warning. It is a sobering thing to consider, which takes us right into the next point, and that is not just what is it that Jesus is looking for, but how is it that that can come about? How is that possible? Let me read now verses 20 through 22. Let's look at that just for a moment. When the disciples saw it, and that is the withering of the tree, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. That's quite a promise. That is quite a promise. We need to be very clear on exactly what it is. The sad thing is that this is a promise that can be, and many of you know often is, misread, misunderstood, and misapplied. And therein leads to a lot of disappointment, distress, and disillusionment. Because we're not settled rightly on what promises like this that Jesus makes actually mean. This is not a blank check. Jesus in no way is saying, you can ask for whatever you want and want whatever you want, and I'll give it. That is not what he is saying. And if you know anything about your heart and how selfish and foolish and short-sighted we can be, that should be a cause for praise for you right now, that he will not give you whatever you want when you really understand something of your wants. Okay, It's certainly not what it means is that. It's not a blank check, but rather it is a promise that is dialed in specifically on a particular concern. Again, the context is vital. When and where? When and where is Jesus making this promise? Again, he has ridden into the city, he has cleansed the temple, and he has cursed this tree. When he makes reference to this mountain, he is surely referring to the temple mount. That hillside that Jerusalem itself was built on, that the temple stands on. I mean, It's the events flow right into one another. He's standing right in the presence of the temple itself. When he says this, makes reference to this mountain, he is surely referring to the temple. This is not a Disney-esque promise of faith-moving mountains. This is a gospel-driven promise of faith-moving that mountain, that mountain of dead religion. That mountain of all leaves and no fruit. That mountain of dead orthodoxy and no life. That mountain. He is promising that through faith and prayer, He will move. He will move. That's what He longs for. And He stands opposed to any obstacle, any obstruction to true and living worship, and therein, that is what he is calling us to pray for. That any such mountain, any such obstacle, any such obstruction, which seems so big, immovable like a mountain, that he would then move. But how can we know? How can we know? What is the assurance that we have that he would actually hear such prayers? What assurance do we have of this promise? Two things. First, the greatness of God. The greatness of God, not the greatness of our faith. The greatness of God. When Jesus says in verse 21, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, don't, don't hear that. Don't hear him saying what he's not saying. When he's used that expression, faith and not doubt, that's, those are synonyms. That's two sides of the same coin. What he's saying is, As you abide in me, as you look to me, as you trust in me, lean upon me, the great God. The issue is not how great is our faith, how strong is our faith. The question is, where is it? What is the object? Who are we looking to? To Jesus, the one who is bound and determined to move such mountains. We have the assurance that he will hear such prayers because of the greatness of God and the heartbeat of God as well. This is his passion. This is what he longs to see again. When we speak, when we pray in such ways, we are speaking his language. We can know he will answer in just the right way, in just the right time, those mountains, those obstructions, those obstacles will be moved. He longs to see true worship, faith, obedience, trust, repentance. That's the fruit he is longing to see, and his followers, his disciples, should be longing to see that as well. And lest we doubt still that he would hear such prayers, we have but to just hang on for a few more days to see just how bound and determined is he to deal with all the obstacles and obstructions between us and God. And we can see him hanging on a cross and just how bound and determined he is to destroy, to to undo any and all obstacles and obstructions that stand between us and God. And we see in that this is his... This is his work. This is his heart. This is what he longs to do. Which is to say that as we see whatever, whatever mountain, whatever, whatever obstacle, whatever obstruction to true worship that we can envision, that we come across, that we see, that we read of, that we encounter, whether that be the false religions of this world, the idols of our culture, the corruption of our churches or the waywardness of our hearts, we have but to ask him, and he will do a work, moving the mountain. Moving the mountain. Jesus is determined to bring deep, change in his people. We should want the same ourselves. That's what the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree is about. What Jesus longs to see and how it comes about. It comes about through him. It's what he longs for. It's how it comes about. is through him and our looking to him, praying to him in faith. It's what he wants, and that's how it comes about. Two critical questions, what he wants and how it comes about. But that leaves us with one last one. Why? Why does he want this? Why is he so determined to bring about such deep, profound change within us? And there's only one answer to that question. He loves us. He loves us. That's why he is so determined to bring about this work of renewal and reclaiming and redemption, salvation in the richest, fullest sense in our lives. And he will stop at nothing. because of his love for us. C.S. Lewis writes of this determined love, this persistent passion, in a section from his classic book, The Problem of Pain. i want to read to you this paragraph. We are, not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I have called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist might not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother, a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny, but then... We are not wishing for more love, but less. That's why we find ourselves being so roughly handled at times in life. Because we're being rubbed as the the artist's work of art. He's not done. He's reshaping. He's reclaiming. He's renewing it. Now... Lewis makes reference to this as the intolerable compliment. Now, I think sometimes we hear that language and we hear this argument that he is making, and we get fixated on the intolerable side. And granted, a lot of that's not a lot of fun. But it's still the compliment. It's the inestimable compliment. It's the ultimate compliment. He loves us. That's the only explanation as to why he's taking such trouble with us. Why he would carry out this ongoing work of renewal and reclaiming and redeeming and the rubbing and the shaking. And that what feels like the rough handling. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. And just think about this for a moment. He made us. This one who made us He knows us. He has all the design specs in mind. Just like he knew what the temple was for. Just like he knew what a fig tree was for. He knows what we are for. And he is determined to carry out this work. He is determined to love us well. Let's pray together. Lord, your feelings towards us are not ambivalent. Your desires for us are not weak. Your purposes for us are not hidden. Your love is intense. And it is. Persistent. And there is great intentionality to your love. We thank you this morning that indeed you do love us just as you find us. But you love us so much you don't leave us as you find us. For your glory, because you're the only one worthy of all praise of the cosmos, that all creatures might be able to look to us and and what you finish with us one day, and all creation saying, Look at that. Look at what he did in her, in him. For your glory, for our good making us, remaking us increasingly according to our design so that we can flourish, so that we can be free. You are determined to bring deep change in your people. We pray that you would help us to want that ourselves and to lay hold of every mean, that you have supplied to us towards that end. We pray in your name. Amen.